you just say the word Yiddish and some people will laugh. They think the language itself is funny. They think the language itself is cute or that it's quaint. And I really think this is blowback from a kind of self-deprecation and actually a feeling of shame that the immigrant generation who couldn't speak English very well had. And a feeling of distance that the American Jews who could speak English well felt about their parents or their grandparents. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. David Foreman talks all things Yiddish at Cornell and shares some history of the language in New York and the United States in general. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we have our colleague David Foreman with us on the air. David is a visiting lecturer in Yiddish, one of the languages Cornell started offering last year. Welcome to Speaking of Language, David. Thank you so much. Before we dive into all things Yiddish here at Cornell and in the area, please share a little bit more about your background and your language experiences with us. Sure. Um, Like many Americans, I grew up in a household where only English was spoken. and never really set out to be a language instructor or um, an expert in any language. I I took French in junior high school and loved it. I did pick up a little more Hebrew in Sunday school than some of the other kids. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really um, not a path that I entered on deliberately. Yeah. In the background, however, of my English-speaking home, there was uh, an important figure in my life, my grandfather, who was a writer of Yiddish books. Uh, My parents both very much admired him and his work. He loved the Yiddish language. He had been born in the old country and come here, became an American citizen, served in the army, and after that became a dentist and worked full-time as a dentist his whole adult life. And in his spare time, amazingly, published 20 books in Yiddish. Wow. So this was a remarkably energetic, passionate, and accomplished man. And he did transmit his love of Yiddish somewhat indirectly to his daughter, my mother. Uh But when she was growing up, she spoke English to him. This is a very common story in America where parents spoke their native language to their children and their children answered them in English. And because my family were proud Americans and wanted their children to succeed, they were happy that their children had unaccented English. And so they didn't press as hard, perhaps, as they wished they had later. Sure. So I grew up in a completely English house, but with this, the idea of Yiddish in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandfather told me stories from his books. I would sit on his knee. He smelled of cigars and whiskey. And I sat there happily anyway because the stories were wonderful. He wrote children's books and a couple of them were translated into English. So I grew up soaking up those stories from the author. That's amazing. And what was your, just for our listeners, uh, what was your grandfather's name? His name was Solomon Simon. And um, 
He died when I was 11 years old. And most of his books actually had not been translated into English. Hmm. And I remember quite vividly when he died, a deep feeling of loss uh, for him, because I loved him. He was a wonderful grandfather. But also for all of those books that I did not know how to read. And I vowed at the age of 11 that someday I would learn Yiddish and someday I would read these books that my grandfather had written. And that's how it stayed for quite a long time. That's wonderful. I studied some Hebrew around my bar mitzvah. When I got to college, there was no Yiddish to be studied. And so I learned some German, hoping that one day that vocabulary would help me learn Yiddish, which is a Germanic language composed uh, you know, the vocabulary is more than half German words. Yeah. And um, only many years later, you know, this idea of one day I'll learn Yiddish became now or never. And in my early 50s, I began studying Yiddish seriously. So I consider myself still a learner. I'm not a native language speaker, as most language teachers at Cornell are. I'm a fellow learner with my students. And what they get from that is an incredible enthusiasm and also a conviction that they can do it because I just have. And I know what it's like to be on the Mm -hmm. learner's side. Um, So that's one thing is I I can't quite hear myself called an expert. Um, You know, I've been a teacher before. I'm good at teaching and um, getting better and better at the language, but I'll never have the capacity that a native speaker has. What are your goals and what are you hoping to bring to the table through your classes? My goals are simply to communicate my love of the Yiddish language and of the culture that comes streaming in as soon as you begin to read and as soon as you begin to speak a history and a history of attitudes and of relationships which which seep through the very words, the individual words themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a kind of cultural literacy, understanding that we've had a lot of Hebrew in our history, we've had German in our history, we've actually had some Romance languages in our history, and then moved that all to Eastern Europe, surrounded by the Slavic languages, the peoples Mm -hmm. who were around us spoke Polish and Ukrainian, and so on. So that's in the very words and the grammatical structures themselves. So first is just to communicate the love of it. And second, some understanding of how the language reflects our long history of being separate and at the same time in direct contact with the peoples around us. That paradox of uh, being with and apart at the same Mm -hmm. time. I was brought in to teach a two-credit evening class once a week which is very different from the other languages. A goal I have for Yiddish at Cornell is to eventually have the five-day-a-week or four-day-a-week version so that students can meet their language requirements Mm -hmm. entirely in Yiddish and get get all the way up to that level. That's great. So um, one of your research interests um, is Yiddish in New York. How do you integrate the area in your teaching? I became interested first in my grandfather's work, as I mentioned, and then as I began reading not just his stories for children, but his books for adults, 
and his musings about what it was to be a Jew in the modern world in America, what the challenges were. And this began well before World War II, but of course took on some intensity after World War II and after the founding of the State of Israel. What did it mean to be Jewish here? And there were debates and there were communities of people who were wrestling with these issues together. And I got very interested in those communities. I also have had the privilege of working for Cornell Library, where I worked on describing Yiddish materials for uh, that were part of something called the Jewish People's Fraternal Order, huh. which was a leftist cultural and political organization in New York. And the papers were mostly from the 30s and in the war years in the 40s. And then just a little bit after, as the McCarthyites shut them down. Finally, I'm working now on some papers in the library from some immigrant associations. So New York was the grounds at which issues of politics, issues of identity, mm. issues of Americanization, assimilation of our ties with the old world have all been in a kind of ferment for a very long time. On top of that, there's a literature of created by the Jews of New York in Yiddish, huh. which is connected to, surely, but also distinct from the literature of the old world. So the first way I began to integrate my interest in the Jews of New York and their Yiddish into my teaching was to bring in poetry, poetry mm -hmm. of uh, Yiddish writers from New York, people yeah. like Mani Leib, Moshe Leib Halperin, Sale Dropkin, and others who either lived in New York or passed through New York. Um, I have plans for certain other works. So when I'm working on manuscripts with my intermediate students, I want to give them a taste of what it's like to decipher Yiddish handwriting, a special oh. skill in and of itself, oh, yeah. and how to work with historic materials. It's uh, The thrill of recognition is a sort of immediate hit for the beginners. Yeah. But as you get deeper in, some idea of the worlds of research that open up to you when you know some Yiddish it's important to communicate that. Um, and then, as I said, there are really interesting ideas about what the, what the immigrants were about, what they were trying to keep, mm -hmm. how they were trying to fit in. And so in some cases, I teach about those materials rather than bringing those materials. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your work for the Cornell University Library. Uh, you also serve as the Jewish Institutional Ledgers Project cataloger there. Uh, what manuscripts are part of this collection, and do they inform your teaching? Yes, so as I just mentioned, some of those handwritten manuscripts are part of that collection. Mm -hmm. And the other collection I worked on a couple of years ago also had some handwritten manuscripts in them. So that crosses both uh, collections. The Jewish Institutional Ledgers Project uh, involves approximately 300 ledgers or record books or chronicles from Jewish institutions in New York, mostly the middle of the 20th century, but some into the 19th century as well. Huh. And these are things like account books or minute books of organizations. Huh. And the organizations had, there were a couple of different kinds of them. Some were simply synagogues. Most 
were organizations that had come together because the members had lived in the same part of the old country. So a group of people who all came from Slutsk in Belarus might form a society together. And these societies were self-help organizations. Some of them had synagogues, some of them did not. Most of them had cemetery benefits, and part of the motivation was that people would have a place to be buried when they died, but they also had health insurance, which didn't exist as a sort of government structure at that time. Sick benefits for people who couldn't work because they were sick or disabled. And then also a huge social component. People got together for parties, for balls, they went to the theater together, they held lectures, and so on. Some of these books are simply records of expenses and income, and you can still glean a lot from those. Sure. Others are detailed descriptions of what happened at meetings. A motion was tabled by so-and-so, there was a mm -hmm. heated debate, and we agreed to do this, or we agreed not to do this. Um, and they reflect, again, a lot of it is about the sick benefits or the cemetery benefits, you know, so-and-so put down a deposit on a headstone and so on. But they also are a window into what people were trying to accomplish communally, which mm -hmm. they would never have been able to accomplish if they had simply accepted that they had immigrated here as individuals. Remember, many of these people had left entire families behind and had no, you know, did not immediately appear to have anyone here. Um, most of them were poor working people in, at a time when poor working people had very few uh, social supports. Mm -hmm. So they bonded together. And it's, again, quite interesting to see what some of the issues were moving from one spot to another on the Lower East Side. Um, having social interactions with other organizations that might have been from the same place, but had a different ideological bent. So the, there, was, there might have been a group that was with a socialist organization, all of whom came from Warsaw, and then there might have been a very religious group, all of which came from Warsaw. But huh. then when World War I came along and the Jews back in Warsaw needed relief, all these groups came together and they raised funds together and they had events together. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Very yeah, nice. Absolutely. If our listeners are interested in learning Yiddish or learning more about it, are there any resources that you can recommend for them? Yes, sure. First, there are actually online classes all the time. Hmm. So there's a group called the Workers Circle or the Arbiter Ring in New York that has classes on the web and did for years before COVID. So they're very used to communicating and to teaching language in an yeah. online format. For beginners, for people of every age, one thing that's lovely about those classes, someone can be from Russia and stay up late at night to be in class. Someone else might be, mm -hmm. um, there might be someone who heard Yiddish as a child but never formally learned it. So there are people who are 30, there are people who are 90 in these classes and huh. they're a pleasure. There are also textbooks that you can simply get and start to study yourself from those books. There's a book simply called Yiddish Volume 1 by Sheva Zucker. There's a new textbook that the Yiddish Book Center in Massachusetts has just published huh. called In Anum, 
and it's a brand new beginner's textbook. Lovely thing. I haven't used it yet, so I can't give a review, but yeah. it looks quite fascinating. And of course, there are private teachers as well. Or best of all, wait till the next fall and take the Yiddish class with me at Cornell. If I have another second, I'd like to put in a pitch for a conversation hour. Later ah. this semester, I will finally be starting or sponsoring a, a, a conversation hour in Yiddish. I'm not sure who's out there who wants to come and chat in Yiddish. Ultimately, I don't think that I will end up leading it, but I think there will be people in the community who are probably first language Yiddish speakers or, mm -hmm. or who are excited to share. And the thing I would like the most is if this can be a multi-generational thing. So oh, yeah. I will be inviting not just students, faculty and staff, but also Cornell alumni or anyone associated with the community who wants to join us. So please keep an ear out and uh, I'll be letting you know soon. Oh, excellent. Well, before we sign off, we'd like to hear you share your favorite word in a language you speak, love, or are learning. So let's hear it. When I first heard that you asked your guests this, I was very reluctant. <laughs> and, and the reason that I'm reluctant is because Yiddish has a certain reputation in America. It has a sort of distinct issue that maybe some other languages have too, I don't know. But I think most languages do not have. You just say the word Yiddish, and some people will laugh. Huh. They think the language itself is funny. They think the language itself is cute, or that it's quaint. Hmm. And I really think this is blowback from a kind of, of self-deprecation. Hmm. And actually a feeling of shame that the immigrant generation, who couldn't speak English very well, had. Uh -huh. And a feeling of distance that the American Jews who could speak English well felt about their parents or their grandparents uh -huh. who had um, thick accents. And so the whole Borscht Belt Jewish humor in America grew up around this idea of plunking in a Yiddish word as a punchline. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are people who do carry these around because they're the ones they heard at home. They heard the word schlep and, or mm -hmm. they heard the word schmaltz. Or, you know, they always seem to start with SH, the ones that people, you know, have this sort of feeling about. And, and it's true. Yiddish has deep humor in it. And it has great and pithy sayings. But it has a whole range of um, things which it can express. All the yeah. feelings, all the modern ideas. Yeah. The full language. It can do everything that a language has. So in a little bit of uh, resistance, I picked two things instead of just <laughs> That's okay with you guys. Yeah. Okay. So one is a, just a little expression. Zaina Kenner in Schwarze Pintelach, which literally says to be knowledgeable in the little black dots. Huh. And the reason I like this expression is because it sort of gives you just a little feeling for the the bilingualism which was part and parcel of Jewish life for a long time. So the scholarly class, the educated people, learned to read and write Hebrew. Hmm. Now, Hebrew, so Hebrew was the higher status language from that point of view, although yeah. Yiddish was the homey and warm language of the home, mama Lushan, the tongue of the, the mother tongue, mm -hmm. you know, the tongue of everyday life. 
Now, both languages are written with the same alphabet. Yiddish is written with the Hebrew letters, and Hebrew mm -hmm. is written with the Hebrew letters. But Hebrew has all kinds of little dots and dashes, which Yiddish yeah. has many fewer yeah. of. So to be knowledgeable in the little black dots means to be a good knower of Hebrew, to be very literate and very educated. And so huh. it comes from that. And so the expression then just came to mean someone who is well-educated about Jewish subjects or about Jewish life, or just uh, an expert in general. Yeah. Can you can you repeat that phrase again? Sein Akena in die Schwarze Pintelach. So again, to be a knower of the little black dots. Mm -hmm. A pintel is a dot or a period. And yeah, a yeah. pintelach are the little ones. And then the second uh, word that I brought in is an American Yiddish word, uh, the word an alreitnik. An alreitnik comes from, again, it's, these words are richer and deeper if you understand the lives and the customs behind it. Mm -hmm. If you ask a Jew how he is, they'll tell you. Here in America, you say, how are you? Someone will say, I'm okay. Yeah. Right? Whether they are, whether they aren't. But a Jew will tell you. A Yiddish speaker <laughs> will tell you how they really are. And so an alreitnik came to mean someone who was over-eager to Americanize, hmm. or also someone who's nouveau riche. Mm -hmm. And so those are two sort of kind of related things. Again, the deeper you uh, people would throw themselves into Americanization in the hopes of succeeding here in this new culture and in this yeah. new world. And they were very proud of mixing in their English words into their Yiddish vocabulary. And if you ask them how they are, they say, I'm all right. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, and so you would even in the Yiddish, you'd throw in this English word, which, which had a clang to uh, the people who were not used to everything being so all right all the time, mm -hmm. not having to say. So those are the two little tidbits that I brought. And again, what they reflect is, is the thing that excites me in the first place, which mm -hmm. is to learn this language is to immediately be drawn into a whole history and a whole set of attitudes and a way of life. Wonderful. That's great. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, David. Thank you so much for having me. Next week, we welcome Julio Rodriguez to Speaking of Language. Julio is the director of the Language Flagship Technology Innovation Center at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. The center just launched a resource aggregator of professional learning experiences for world language education called Amplify, and we are excited to hear all about it. Until then... Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.